Let's pray. Lord, you are the Lord of creation. You are the God of life. And in your hand is the power of both life and death. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you would help me bring a word in season to Sovereign Grace Fellowship. That you would help those of us who have bent the knee to Jesus be encouraged if there is fear, if there is doubt, if there is pain, bring healing. Lord, for those hearing my voice that don't know you, that are on the fence, that are skeptical, God, I ask that they would take this issue of death and dying seriously because we all will die. And so I pray that your mercy and grace and power would help me this morning and help all of us here have ears to hear what your word is saying. Amen. <clears throat> Death is not ultimate. God is. Those were the words that I opened up <clears throat> my eulogy to honor the life and mourn the death of Specialist Caron Polito Contreras, born December 15, 1989 in Redondo Beach, California, who died on September 8, 2011 in Kandahar, Afghanistan, of wounds suffered when enemy forces attacked his unit with an improvised explosive device. And I remember this grief-stricken family sadly experienced what awaits all of us. And that is, there comes a time when we're born, and then there comes that time when we die. Now this week, both the LeMay family and Sovereign Grace Fellowship Church have suffered the death of our matriarch, Pat LeMay, or Grandma Pat as many of us called her. Uh, too often the fact of death and the loss of loved ones is really unbearable, even for Christians. Um, the loss of a father or mother, a spouse, a child, even our pets. Sometimes it's too, it, it's, it's debilitating. <clears throat> it's such an emotionally charged event with its finality tends to rock our world and leave us with no solace at all. So what do we do? We inebriate in any way we can, but still we know that our death awaits us. <clears throat> so what do we do? Well, death is universal. It's universal for humans, but Scripture denies that it's part of our natural existence. In fact, Scripture sees death as an enemy, as the final enemy that will be done away with. What death is and when actually it occurs uh, is considered medically uh, by many. There are theories that abound. There are philosophic views that abound from denying it to dreading it. <clears throat> There's even an emergence in death study called thanatology, which is the Greek word for the study of death. But in America, we tend to sterilize it. We don't like to face it. One of the things we do, we put people that are difficult to care for in rest homes. Now, I'm not judging or condemning anybody for doing that. I understand that. Um, it's just the experience of a lot of us that that's all we know to do. What I am saying is that we city slickers... We people that did not grow up in the farm, we have a very hard time with it. We have a very difficult time with it. So how ought we approach this issue of death? Well, first of all, we shouldn't deny it. We shouldn't deny that it occurs. All monism, with its view of reality that is just an illusion, that it's a dream, it's not real. Nor should we be like Spock, from Star Trek, cold and indifferent 
approaching it a la naturalism's view that we're meaningless accidents. Nor should we approach this subject mindlessly like, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Instead, I think, as Christians, as people that take the Word of God seriously, our approach should be careful and humble. As creatures contemplating their Creator. Specifically, as Christians, we want to understand what death is, how it came to be, and what its remedy is. But before this, I think it's important to understand the big ideas in the Bible in order for us to uh, see where in human history we stand in relationship to what is called death. Now, if I were to ask you um, to succinctly give me the big ideas in the Bible, what would you say? It's rhetorical. It's really four words. Four words hammers it out. There's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And some people even put in redemption and consummation as one. But those are the four big ideas in the Bible. And it's important for us to understand them so that when we deal with death and we are confronted with even our own death, we recognize that we are someplace in the scope of God's overall plan of redemption. First of all, creation. Creation is where the self-existent, all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, and fully benevolent God decided to create out of nothing all that exists. And upon its completion... Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the creation from the beginning, it wasn't just good, it was very good. So the creation is still good. But, you got what's called the fall. Where God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, rebelled against His command that promised death if they were to violate it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That is Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, and then we have the account in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But then there's something else. There's what's called redemption. After the fall... Immediately God prophesied after the judgment that through Abraham's seed, this alienation from God and each other would be remedied by Christ Jesus. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that He secured salvation from God's wrath, those who trust in Him, no. But death still remains until the consummation. Now last week was Resurrection Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, we looked at last week. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57 says this, When this imperishable, talking about our... Uh, um, our bodies, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in between ages, folks. We're not at the consummation yet. This body, which is perishable, hasn't put on immortality yet. We haven't received our new bodies. But they're forthcoming for those that are in Christ. And lastly, there's the fourth thing, which is called the consummation. This is the event that will bring about the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ's people from all time will rule and reign with Him, in new resurrected bodies, never to die again, 
never to mourn again. Let me read this. I just got to read it. It's just too good a news to not read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He'll dwell among them and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And He said, Right. For these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And Revelation 22, 1 through 5 and 12, 15 reads this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the throne, um, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bond servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. That's forthcoming. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We're in between redemption and consummation. So I want to ask the question, what is death? explain in many different ways. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. It's the pinnacle of alienation. Alienation between the creature and the creator. Between the creature and his neighbor. Between the creature and the rest of creation. And between the creature and himself or herself. There's an alienation that happened when sin came in and death took place. Things are not the way they ought to be. Death is also the promise of judgment that God fulfilled. This occurred when Adam and Eve in the garden partook of the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. Here God's goodness was challenged by Satan as he's talking to Eve. And he's saying, surely he does not want you to know what he knows. Essentially saying, God wants to keep you from having fun. Same lie over and over again, even today. Right? Essentially, he's saying... And he, and, and he did this very well. The gist of the well-placed question is, has God said? And he, and, and he planted that seed in Eve and in Adam of judgment. What is the number one thing people can't stand to hear about the Gospel? They hate to hear that there's bad news. That the wrath of God is on those who do not know Christ, who have not bent the knee. They hate to hear the truth of that. But nevertheless, we must be faithful and share it with them. Death is the result of idolatry. Think about it. This occurred when our first parents made much of themselves by defying God. By wanting to be God. Think about it. The creature, finite, needy, 
wanting to be like the self-existent Creator who needs nothing but exists of Himself. And that's what happened. Death is a reminder that God is faithful. He's faithful to keep the promises given. God's Word, when everything has all been said and done, will absolutely rule and be obeyed. God assured Adam in Genesis 2.17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Eventually he died. And in the book of Hebrews, his word says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. It's a reminder that we will all die and not miss our appointment. You will not be late to your appointment of death. This includes the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, the believer and the non-believer. So death is, it is physical, it's spiritual, and it's eternal. It's physical and it's attributed to the first Adam. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Thus all mankind became and remain mortal. Death is also spiritual. It reveals that our separation from God makes Him our enemy. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says this, Even while we walked about, you were dead. It's talking to Christians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But death is also eternal. It is the just judgment of God on all who don't bend the knee to Jesus. And it's referred to as the second death in Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15, says this, Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So while death reminds us of things, of these things, We must not forget this, that death is not ultimate. God is ultimate. He's the remedy. What's death's remedy? It's God. Specifically, it's God in His Son, Jesus Christ. When we're saying that God is ultimate, we're saying that He's ultimate by virtue of His ontological status of aseity. Here's what this means. That God exists from Himself necessarily and is thus ultimate because He is self-existent. He's the only being that is self-existent. Thus He is ultimate. There's only one Creator. Thus He owns everything. And while some might think that the devil's got power in the world, and he does, But He's not sovereign over the world. God is. Nothing else that exists can make that claim and back it up. But God can and has and forever will. Now when I say that God is the remedy for death, I say that the remedy is in Jesus Christ, the Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So, I want to look at three things of Jesus and then we're going to linger in John 11. I've never preached like this, but please follow if you can. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He became flesh. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. And it is the covenant name God gave to Moses at Sinai. 
Now, if you go to John's Gospel, chapter 1, we read something very, very unique. It's the first four verses. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, the word here is God's own, and this is from D.A. Carson. Here's what he says. it: The word here is God's own peer and God's own self. It is God the Son. We know that God reveals Himself to the prophets through His Word. That God creates through the spoken Word, Genesis 1. That God transforms His people through His Word. Right? And now Jesus is God's self-revelation, self-expression, God's own agent in creation. And He comes to save and to transform His people. In Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God became man. And in so doing, as the second Adam came to remedy what the first Adam messed up. He came to fix the alienation. And remember, death is that alienation. He came to the death. He came to fix the death problem. Remember in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, that was the tent of meeting. That was where the people came, and that was where God manifested His presence. Well, in Jesus, in John especially, in Jesus, the ultimate meeting place between a holy God and rebellious sinners is realized. Everything that the sacrifices were pointing to, all of the ritual in the tabernacle, it was all pointing to Jesus. And God in Christ now comes to dwell with His own. John 1.14 says that He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And thus, the meeting place where peace with God can only be found is in Jesus. It is in the God-man. That's why He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. <laughs> Jesus is not just another religious or a philosopher who's got a way of living that's another alternative. No, no. You don't understand. Jesus is God, the Creator, the self-existent One, come in the flesh. And so when He says something, we better listen. So He's the Word become flesh. But also, Jesus is called the second Adam. And one of the things that we can see is the contrast between the obedience of Jesus and the disobedience of the first man, Adam. He's known as the second Adam whose life, obedience, and righteousness are credited to those of us who trust in Him alone for salvation. These two Adams acted. The first disobeyed, and what came in? Death. Death reigned. The second obeyed, and life resulted. It reigns in Christ. Now the former brought condemnation to all men, and the latter wrought justification for many. Romans five fifteen through 19 reads like this. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression 
resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. You hear that? The many were made sinners. I wasn't there in the garden and neither were you. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. You're made righteous. You don't earn it. You can't. In fact, your righteousness is not yours. It's Christ's. Did you know that Isaiah even talks about that? He said that the day is coming that your children are going to be disciples taught of the Lord and great will be their peace and undisturbed composure. That no weapon formed against you will prosper, but every tongue that rises up against you to judge you, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, says God. It's even in the Old Testament. So, Jesus, the second Adam's act of obedience, secures the believer's justification before a holy God whose wrath was satisfied through the free will sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. This was a plan from eternity past. Yet his life of obedience and righteousness could never have been credited to those who believe unless he rose from the dead. See, because at the end of the day, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. If Jesus literally did not have a bodily resurrection, and by the way, in the Bible, resurrection is a bodily resurrection. That's how it's understood from beginning to end. Okay? There are some that want to argue that it is a spiritual resurrection. No, it's a literal physical resurrection. That's the Jewish understanding. That's the biblical understanding. So Jesus' resurrection, what does it do? It vanquishes the power of death. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues for the scriptural grounds of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He goes on and talks about the historicity of this event. It didn't happen in some corner in the world where there, uh, nobody knew about Him. It happened in Jerusalem. For all to see. And when Paul gives this account, he says... He starts naming off the the witnesses, the apostles. He doesn't name the ladies, but I'm not even going to get into what. Well, the reason he doesn't name, well, forget it. Anyway, it's it's a big deal. But I'm sorry, I even said that. Um, he says he also appeared to me, but he appeared to like 500, most of which. We're still alive when he's writing this. He threw down the gauntlet and said, you, 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 you think I'm making this up? Go ask these people. You do understand that most of the things all of us know, we know by authority, not by personal experience, right? You do know this, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, I personally don't know that Italy, the the you know that Italy actually exists. I've never gone there, I've never flown there, but I trust that you know the map of the world. It's probably a good, probably a good, uh, uh, um, um, what's it called? It's probably a good bet that it actually exists. You know, 
Did you hear that? Probably. I haven't experienced Italy. Does it mean Italy doesn't exist? No. Right? I have personally have not seen germs. But I believe those that, you know, are, are medical doctors, that they've said a little bit of science about, you know, um, the stuff that gets you sick, like this whole week I've been battling. So I trust that they know what they're talking about, right? Yeah, come on. Eyewitness account is no meager account. Eyewitness account is, is, is number one when you are trying a case in a court of law. This is no small deal. So Paul, Paul does something here. Verse, verses 12 through 19, I want to read this. If Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom we did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. A literal bodily resurrection that happened in space-time history. If that didn't happen, what we're doing here is you know, worthless. It has no objective true meaning. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There's four things he's saying here. If Christ has not been truly raised from the dead, the first witnesses were liars. It doesn't make sense. If Christ has not truly been raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. Third, if Christ has not truly been raised from the dead, our faith is useless. It's useless. And fourth, if He's not been truly raised from the dead, we should be pitied more than anyone else. Why? Because we've been deeply hoodwinked. We're believing something that's false to be true. And that is the issue all the time. It's the epistemology, my friends. It is about knowledge. The people that control the knowledge vault of a society govern it. And if our faith is put to mere private subjective values... The people in our culture are not going to listen to what we have to say. You've got to understand that is a stronghold that says religious knowledge, you really can't have any religious knowledge. What gives us real knowledge? Science gives us real knowledge. And that's it. And then the, the simple question is, well, what scientific uh, experiment did you perform to come to that conclusion? And it'll be silent because it's a philosophic position. It has nothing to do with science the way we know science. But if this message is true, Not only is it the greatest news, it is the most practical news each and every one of us can appropriate to our own lives and share with other people. We read earlier, somebody read earlier, it's Danny, the account in Luke. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And it's obvious, nothing. If there is life after death, and we know that how? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead to tell us. And we have the eyewitness accounts. That's how we know it. I don't have to experience something to know it. 
1 Corinthians 5, 15, 20 through 22 says this, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you are in Christ, you will live forever. Not as God's enemy, but as His friend. So here we have Adam's work contrasted to Christ's work. One brings death, the other one brings life. So now that we've considered what death is, how it came about, and um, how God remedied it, let's go to the Gospel of John 11. Um... The Gospel of John is uh, a very, very, it's a unique Gospel. Uh, in it, um, the Apostle John really highlights the deity of Christ in a way the other three Gospels don't intend to do it. But, nevertheless, um, chapter 11, verse uh, 1 through... A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus had a very personal relationship with his family. They were tight. They weren't aloof. They, he, was, he was close to them. He had personally ministered to them. And now here, we got a situation where Lazarus is sick, and we know the account that he's going to let him die. Okay? Now, Jesus says something here that I don't want us to miss. He says, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Raising Lazarus in John's Gospel was the seventh and final sign. It wasn't just a mere miracle. It was a demonstration of the true identity of Jesus, the God-man. And as one author put it, a more powerful sign of Jesus' messianic identity could not be given. As John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's John 20, 31 to 32. Now here he continues in verse 17 and says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning the brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. Now Jesus, uh, and, I've, and I've said this earlier, but Jesus focuses in death on God's glory in verse 4. He focuses on God's glory. God is glorified how? God is glorified in this context by the Son of 
being revealed as who He is. He is the resurrection. He is the I Am. He is the One that was promised to come. And to prove that He is the One, He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. The light of the world here unveils the truth that death has a master. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's ultimate. Death is not. Jesus can't be saying here, by the way, that believers won't physically die. We know that Lazarus died even after he was raised from the dead. I believe that Jesus is saying what Revelations is talking about, that he is not those whose names are written in the book of life, they will not experience the second death, which is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. So Jesus is debunking also the debate of his times, where some Pharisees were saying, yeah, that the dead rise, and the Sadducees were saying, no, there's no such thing as that. So he's doing, there's a lot of things he's doing here. Okay? Verse 30 gets to the meat of what I want us to see. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, he saw him, she saw him, and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? He said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Yes, he, he could have. But he had another purpose. So here, one of the things we see is Jesus' humanity on display. He does not deny that there's been a real death. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's a big deal. And it's a source of great pain. When the Word says that He's deeply moved in spirit, that term in Greek literally means to snort like a horse, which means He was angry. Many believe that His anger against uh, is, is, is coming against the effect of sin which has for so long uh, 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 ravaged His good creation. I could see that. There's a time to be angry. There's a time to be absolutely furious. And when death comes, Jesus appropriately gets angry, and He's angry at He's feeling the pain. He's not denying it. He's not inebriating himself. He's feeling the pain. Jesus is in the moment of truth like no other human being in history. Not only is he deeply moved, he was troubled. And this word means to shake, to be disturbed, to shudder. Jesus is embracing everything He came to conquer that death produces. And He's feeling it. He's not stoic. And by the way, He's the smartest human being who ever lived. And He was a feeler. Jesus wept. That is packed with meaning. The God-man discloses how the Father feels about death. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
and precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. When it says that He wept, it means that He burst into tears. He just couldn't hold it in. He's overcome by emotion and He gives way to weeping. Now my question is this, Jesus what the heck are you doing? Why are you putting on this show? You know you're going to raise them from the dead. You already know. Why are you going through this act? And the answer is he's not going through an act. He's showing you and me how not to live in denial. He's showing you and me that to be fully human, you got to have your thoughts and you got to feel. Your affections matter. even though he knew what he was going to do. He felt the pain and the effects of the fall while being the Redeemer. The one who would buy us back from the slave market. Jesus entered into the pain of people. He did not run from it. And boy, the, and, and you know what? He invites people to enter into His own pain. In the garden, right before he's going to the cross, he invites his disciples to share in his sufferings. You and I, friend, do the exact opposite most of the time. And I think that is one reason why we're so broken. I think we would experience a lot more healing if we really consider how Jesus interacts. He knew He was coming back to conquer death and to buy back those who are His. Verse 38 says, So Jesus again being deeply moved within. John is emphasizing this. Verse 39, Jesus said, Remove this stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for He's been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. I knew that You always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that You sent me. When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Jesus resuscitated Lazarus. The difference here between resurrection and resuscitation is when the former's experience that person can never die again. They are forever with their new glorified body. Whereas in resuscitation, the person dies again. When he says remove the stone, John is wanting to accentuate that this was a real dead corpse. This account is real. It's not a fabricated story. And for God's sake, if you're going to say it is, then you need to do your homework and you need to argue why I, I should even listen to your nonsense. What was the goal of it? To see the glory of God. The glory of God here is illustrated how? That the Master is Master over death. The last enemy. It was Elijah and Elisha who performed uh, 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 miracles of resuscitating people from the dead in the Old Testament. I think three times. Here Jesus does it. Life swallows up death. This was a foretaste of the future reality that awaits all believers. Eternal life is not just a future state that awaits us who bend the knee to Jesus. It is being in actual relationship with this amazing God who created all things for His pleasure. Eternal life is a person. It is God. 
God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit. Remember in the beginning that I mentioned the importance of understanding where we are chronologically in relation to creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And I said, and I say again, I say we're between redemption and consummation. Obviously, creation's already happened. Fall's already happened. So probably the two, right? Yeah. Okay. So all of us, all of us in here are going to die. Some of us sooner than others, and it doesn't matter our age. But some of us we know are closer than others. I I know I'm closer than my son. I don't want him to die before I do. That would break my heart. When the Christian dies... The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the non-believer that dies, I think the parable of Lazarus and the rich man shows that there is an in-between stage before final judgment. And it is not a good place. Death is not ultimate. God is. Jesus demonstrated it through His life, through His burial, through His resurrection. And He also understands that we deal with this fear of dying. It hurts. It never goes away. When I lost my dad, or lost, we lost a son, it just hurts. It hurts. But listen to what this great high priest in the book of Hebrews, how he is described. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be comforted. I want you to be able to leave today hopeful in the rock of truth, which is God's Word, and in our High Priest, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2, 14-18 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Fear of death is a slavery Jesus came to rescue us from. If you're a Christian, that's yours. That's been bought. That's your inheritance. It's your inheritance. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. So we're the seed of Abraham in Christ. Therefore, He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You don't think Jesus was tempted to fear death? Come on. Your grandma, your mom. One of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. Pat always made me feel like everything was okay. Made me feel like I was not a misfit. And that's saying a lot for those of you who know me. And I gotta tell you, I couldn't bear to see her this this last month. I couldn't do it. I I just couldn't get myself to do it. I don't regret it. It was just so painful for me. It was just so painful. And I'm going to miss her a lot. 
I trust that she's his, though. And I trust that I will see her again. Those of you who have lost loved ones, a spouse, a child, friend, parent, Jesus understands your pain. He really does. That's why he's called the Good Shepherd. He's not a hireling. He's not a hireling. So run to him, saints. Run into his arms. Pour out your hearts before him. If you're not his, repent. Become a child of the living God, the author of life, who's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. At Adelita's funeral, my mother-in-law, we we sang a song. I wanted to sing it today, but my voice is gone. But I want to read to you and close with the lyrics. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. O Jesus, conquering the grave, Your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in You will in Your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise You evermore. O Jesus, conquering the grave, Your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in You will in Your mercy find that it is not death to die. Lord, You are the God of creation. You are the Lord of life and even death. May we look to You as we try to wrap our minds and hearts around this reality that before the consummation we deal with this thing called death and dying. Holy Spirit, move. Move in this place, Lord. Heal. Comfort. Bring hope and renewed strength to wearied, broken, tattered souls. You are the Good Shepherd. You've laid down your life for your sheep. Lord, I pray that You touch each and every one in here. Everyone hearing my voice. 
move powerfully in their lives. May they know the power of the resurrection as they bow to You in adoration.